It's another beautiful day for baseball in Los Angeles. And baseball podcast. Josh Schaefer and Blake Harris cover everything Dodgers right here on Inside the Ravine. How's it going, everyone? And welcome to another brand new episode of Inside the Ravine. Joining us, as always, from beautiful Ontario, California, and the Rain headquarters is my co-host, Josh Schaefer. Josh, buddy, uh, I know the Ontario Rain haven't played for a couple of months, but I guess you could say that uh, things are going better for the Rain than they are for the Dodgers at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the Rain aren't losing right now, um, so that's nice. And uh, yeah, also the Rain don't have... Uh, a historically bad uh, pitching staff at the moment. So um, not that they ever have, um, but yeah, I mean, things have just uh, not gone well for the Dodgers as of late. And uh, they've now fallen all the way to third place in the division. Yeah. I think the rain are going on like what, five, six, seven weeks without losing a game. Uh, yeah. The Dodgers, they, they can't say the same. They haven't won a game. I believe since last Thursday now, so I think we're five days into this, it's been bad for the Dodgers. I think this will be, Josh, officially maybe part three of The Sky is Falling, but this one actually might be the most valid Sky is Falling episode. The previous few were just after a couple weeks into the season, so there's a lot to talk about. We have a series to break down, a couple of other things. We're going to be getting to a Q&A later in the show, but before we talk about all things Dodgers, again, make sure you guys follow the show on whatever social media app you guys use. We're on Twitter. We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. Just find us over there at Inside the Ravine. And you guys can also watch and listen to the full episodes over on YouTube. Just search Inside the Ravine. And you guys can listen to the podcast wherever you guys get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple, and the Odyssey app as well. So, Josh, all that's out of the way. We got a series to talk about. Now, if you would have caught Friday's game, made it through the first six innings, and then just turned the TV off, enjoyed your weekend... You probably would have thought the Dodgers would have got off to a great start. The weekend would have a lot of potential. And you'd be looking at maybe a sweep or maybe a two-game series win. Everything hit the fan after that. So before we talk about all the bad, Josh, there's at least a six-inning sample size that was fantastic that we actually get to talk about. And that's Emmett Sheehan. Because this is a guy that gets called up from Double A. We talked about him last week. Second pitcher, second player in the Andrew Freeman era to ever get called up straight from Double A to make his major league debut. And uh, Josh, I don't think you actually could have had a better debut than Emmett Sheehan had because he went six no hit innings, was fantastic, really exceeded my expectations. I'm sure he exceeded your expectations. So. What was your thoughts and takeaways just from that little six-inning sample size that we got from a guy that had never even pitched at the AAA level? I mean, remember what we said on the last episode, um, and it was, you know, we hyped him up. You know, we pumped the guy's tires. Um, we talked about how good he had been. But then we also ended the show kind of with a, but let's temper our expectations. Like, I'm not asking for a no-hit performance in his debut. Like, I'm asking for maybe four or five good innings at this point. Like, that's all we need. Well, we actually, you know, got what we said we didn't need, which was six no-hit innings from Emmett Sheehan in his debut. Walked two, struck out only three, so the strikeout numbers were a little bit low, but I don't care. I mean, the guy was... Unreal. Um, I said it's probably not going to be a replica of Bobby Miller's debut, and it was somehow even better. Um, but he and Bobby Miller have really been, obviously, you know, we'll talk about Bobby Miller a little bit in a little bit. But um, up until that point, like he and 
he and Bobby Miller had been the Dodgers two most impressive pitchers. I think so far this season, obviously Kershaw has been good. Um, you know, obviously gonsolin has been, you know, a little bit here and there, but, um, look, I mean, these two guys have both been phenomenal, um, so far. And what we got from Emmett Sheehan on Friday was way better than I think any of us could have expected. Um, and, um, it was awesome and good for him. He, he looked at home. He had a couple of phenomenal defensive plays behind him. There was the Freddie Freeman play that um, was great on Twitter because you saw Emmett Sheehan's reaction and then the diving play by Mookie in right field. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that was the final out of Sheehan's debut uh, yeah. for him. Um, and it was just like, that is just the perfect way to end the guy's debut. And I know some fans are going to complain about the fact that Dave Roberts didn't let him go more, but let's, Let's quiet that right now. I mean, we got to shut that down because this guy had never even pitched in AAA. He went six innings, had a 4 nothing lead. The game should have been over right then and there. Six no-hit innings with a 4 nothing lead, the game was over. Um, until, of course, it wasn't. Yeah, I, I was like on both sides when it came to pulling Emmett Sheehan. I, I was going to ask for your thoughts, but you pretty much just gave them where, yeah, I think I also heard in addition to never just again pitching at the AAA level, I don't think in his minor league career he'd ever actually gone into the seventh inning. So it made sense not to push it. And obviously, like you said, you have a 4 nothing lead. You're just asking your bullpen to hold a four-run lead over the course of three innings, which for 28 other teams wouldn't be asking for a whole lot. For the Dodgers, it was. Maybe, I guess it's easier in hindsight to look back, but maybe like throw him out there at the top of the seventh, see if he's able to get a quick out or two. I think following the game, Jerry Harrison was saying, you know, have someone warming, throw him out there for the seventh. If he allows a base hit immediately, then you pull him. But maybe there's a scenario where he gets three quick outs on eight pitches and he goes to the eighth. But I again, I got no problem with Dave Roberts pulling him because, again, the expectation is the bullpen's able to hold things down. So for Emmett Sheehan, it looks like he's going to make another start. I believe he's going to start on Friday against the Astros. I want to say that's when he's lined up to make his next start. And by sending Michael Grove down, it means that Sheehan might, might honestly make two more starts. So I was very impressed. Obviously, the strikeout numbers could be a little bit higher because he was one of the more strikeout-heavy pitchers in all of the minors. So uh, I was blown away by the debut. I thought it went fantastic. And that's pretty much, Josh, when everything just comes to a screech and halt. Because after that point, over the remaining two and a half games, the Dodgers were outscored 29-4. to they were outscored yeah. by 25 runs over the final 23, 24 innings. Friday night was an absolute disaster. I mean, that lead only lasted a couple of outs. I think the Giants took the lead in the eighth inning. Obviously, the Dodgers came back. They tied it up in the ninth. They went into extras, and they lost. Not a whole lot I want to get to in this game, Josh, but I did want to get your quick thoughts on one thing, and that was Mookie Betts, which... Very rarely are we ever going to talk about Mookie Betts and him blowing a game in any way. Very rarely are we going to talk about him potentially blowing a game not once but twice on the base paths. Uh, Mookie had two just really uncharacteristic plays on that Friday night. The second one was more so kind of him just not paying attention. The first, I potentially you can make the case it was a smart baseball play. The Dodgers had first and second, one out. Will Smith was at the plate. I believe it was a 2-1 count. And the Dodgers do a double steal with Mookie and Freddie. Mookie's thrown out at, at third base. Now there's two outs for the inning. Are you okay with it, Josh? Did you think the Dodgers got too aggressive there? I think Mookie even said he called it on his own. He thought he had a big enough lead. He thought he was going to make it where a base hit from Will Smith wins the game. And he ended up walking, I think, a pitch later. So 
Were you okay with that? Uh, Mookie just taking matters into his own hands and trying to get to third when it wasn't necessarily really important for him to be at third base? I, I think it's, it, you know, I if there's somebody on the team that I think I'm going to say, like, all right, this guy needs to take matters into his own hands and make that decision, I feel like I'm going to take Mookie to, to kind of call his own shot. But hindsight's 2020. Um, looking back at it, and in the moment, I will say this: I think hindsight, you know, kind of backs me up here. I do not get it at all. I don't understand. I don't understand why. Why is that necessary? Because sure, like, do you want to take away a double play? Yes, I totally get that. But what we're working with here is we're working with one of the Dodgers' best hitters, one of the best hitters in baseball when he's hot, Will Smith. And like you just said, a base hit wins the game with Mookie on second games over with a base hit. So I don't really understand the move to do the double steal unless you're only taking away the double play because a base hit wins the game no matter what. Well, he walked on what the next pitch. I'm pretty was, sure he walked on. The it next was, pitch. it was, yeah, because it was a two, one count and it was ball three when he stole. So yeah, then yeah, after he was out the very next pitch, Will Smith, ended up walking. So it wasn't yeah, like it was so the he, first pitch of the at bat. It was Will Smith was already ahead in the count. Exactly. So, so he walks on the next pitch. Well, I mean, you go back to, I'm going to, let me pull this up from, from this inning real quick, because if you go to this inning, this is what the top of, or this is the bottom of the 10th bottom of the ninth. This is the bottom of the ninth inning. So bottom of the ninth, you know, there's one out, uh, Rojas singles, you know, the Dodgers bring him in. It's 5-5, and you've got runners on first and second base. And Will Smith comes up and walks. And at that point, J.D. Martinez comes up and strikes out on three pitches. But the big problem for me at that point is there's one out with the bases loaded. If you make – first of all, a hit wins the game, obviously. But if you make contact and hit the ball to the outfield in any capacity, the game is also over with the bases loaded and only one out. And with the way that the Dodgers had rallied that inning, I just don't really understand making that move. Because again, you know, like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. The guy walks on the next pitch, sure. But when you've got the bases juiced for one of your most consistent hitters, and look, at that point, like, I'm not saying that JD doesn't strike out if the bases are loaded. Like, I'm not saying that at all. But you've got to think, the approach changes a little bit for JD Martinez if he comes up. Because at that point, he's thinking, I have to get a hit to win the game right here. But if the bases are loaded, maybe the approach changes to, I need to make contact here rather than get a hit. Um, so it's, for me, it was, it was tough to watch because they, I want to say they had talked about it right on the broadcast. Like it looks like they want like a double steal here. And I just kept sitting there going, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because then what happens if somebody gets thrown out? And sure enough, I mean, it wasn't close. Um, and, and he got nailed at third base. So I don't really understand it. Um, like I said, if there was somebody on the team that I would want to make that decision for themselves, it would be Mookie, but it didn't work. And it, I, I'm not yeah. saying that in itself cost them the game, but that was a massive turning point where it kind of started to feel like they're not going to win this game. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I, there's no one I trust more to make the decision than Mookie. And I'm glad that it was like his call. He decided to take matters into his own hands. And of course, you know, if he gets the steal, all of a sudden it's runners on second and third with one out. And maybe the at-bat to Will Smith does change. And if it works, you know, Mookie looks like a genius. It's just the fact that it didn't. I just, I thought it was getting too cute just because, again, the base hit, you win the game. 
Will Smith's ahead in the count. Duvall didn't have his best stuff. He'd already kind of blown it to a couple of hitters. So I thought he was getting a little too cute. Then there was just that whole debacle, Josh, a couple innings later in the ninth, where they would have had runners on second and third. Michael Bush was on third. Dino held him up. And Mookie just didn't look at Dino, and he got hosed. And a lot of people were immediately putting the blame on Michael Bush. And I'm just like, look at the replay. He was held up. Mookie wasn't looking. That one, I mean, again, a little more. I, I get it. Mookie thought that Michael Bush might have been round in third, heading home. He just didn't keep his head up. But I don't think that was main, the main one that lost the game. But again, it was just an uncharacteristic play from Mookie on the base paths. And the fact that we had two in the same game. But the thing that was overlooked, again, in that extra innings loss, the fact that one, the bullpen blew it, all that kind of stuff. Josh, after that, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think a lot of people even realize this. After Freddie Freeman tied the game in the ninth with his hit, that was the Dodgers' final hit of the game. They didn't record a hit the rest of the ninth. They didn't record a hit in the 10th inning, and they didn't record a hit in the 11th inning. So the offense, they had their chances. They had nine consecutive plate appearances with a runner in scoring position, and they couldn't bring in a run at any no point. Hit. Yeah. So, I mean, after that Freddie Freeman base hit to tie the game, the best at bat over those final three innings was Michael Bush, who hit the absolute hell out of a ball that had an expected batting average of like 900. It just happened to be a flyout. But the bats, the final three innings, they didn't show up. Just a very frustrating game. And Josh, after losing a game like that, you're thinking, man, things can't get any worse for the Dodgers. Well, fast forward about 20 hours, and they do, because they lose to the Giants 15 to nothing. I think it was something like the worst shutout at Dodger Stadium by the Giants in like ever in like history something like that it's like the Dodgers biggest loss at home I think in a decade so an absolute horrible loss and the worst part is it's the fact that it really didn't unravel until the fifth inning Bobby Miller got through four innings he was looking fantastic and then just things kind of fell apart in the fifth and then the bullpen came in and then just one by one guys were just teeing off against the Dodger relievers and it was just a disaster and then again push it over to Sunday they were teeing off against Tony Gonsolin, and actually, Josh, the bullpen, I had to double-check this because I missed the game on Sunday, the bullpen actually had a clean outing on Sunday. It wasn't the bullpen that allowed any damage, it was all on Tony Gonsolin, so you have a game in which the bullpen sucks on Saturday, but then you fast-forward to Sunday, and you have a game in which Tony Gonsolin sucks, I believe allowed seven earned runs, the bullpen was perfect, so overall, again, you combine those two games into one, essentially, everything went wrong, the offense was quiet, defensively apparently there was some really bad plays in the outfield and the infield and overall the series as a whole is probably the worst three-game series I've seen from the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium in at least as long as I can remember Josh I don't recall a series over the years where there I think there's been times where the Dodgers have been swept but pretty much outplayed the way they were outplayed just an overall embarrassing series yeah I mean it, it, it went from bad to worse because you and I texted about this, um, but I think that the extra innings loss on Friday, the one that we've been talking about mostly, 7-5 extra innings loss, I think is the worst loss of the season for the Dodgers. And that includes the 15 nothing loss 24 hours later because the fact that you got six no-hit innings from a guy in his debut and a 4 nothing lead and your bullpen blows it and you can't get a hit. Nine batters come to the plate with runners in scoring position and you can't get a hit. I mean, this is straight out of the 2023 or the 2022 NLCS um, or NLDS. Like, it, it is right there with having all these guys come to the plate. You can't get a runner across. Um, so, and the way that that game, un, you know, unfurled, I think is the worst loss of the season for the team just because of, you know, how the start was. And then the next day, I mean, 
you're right. Like Bobby Miller has a couple of good innings and then falls apart. There's the grand slam. It's just an ugly, ugly loss, but still not as gut wrenching as the night before, I feel like. And then you're one day to salvage the series on Sunday. And, and a guy like Tony Gonsolin, who's been so reliable up to this point, um, got knocked around a little bit. And then the bullpen is this is the one game that the bullpen actually comes out and does what it needs to do. And the offense isn't there to support it. So definitely one of the more frustrating series for the Dodgers. It's right up there with um, all the, those eight games against the D backs to start the year, which obviously we knew like, okay, like D backs actually aren't so bad. They're pretty good. Obviously they're in first place now, but also it's early. Like the team will figure it out. But I mean, it's right up there with like watching them lose the same game over and over again against the D backs. And also the, uh, that Pirates sweep last year or the year before at home, whenever that was like, that was just tough to watch. And this be, being the Giants and, you know, given how the Dodgers have slipped so much in the last, you know, two weeks or so, I think that has culminated in what might be the worst three game series I've seen from the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium in quite some time. And, and the worst part about it is the fact that it's coming off of their first series win in like four series. You know, they knocked off the White Sox. They took two out of three. Thursday, I think, was that game in which Chris Taylor had like the game-tying grand slam. Freddie Freeman walked it off in the ninth, and we were talking about how, you know, there was that fun play in center field, and we're thinking, this is, you know, this is this might be the turning point where they've been playing some bad baseball, but you finally win a series. You have an amazing come from behind victory. And I think we talked about it. I think we said it was like the biggest win of the season given the circumstances, given Chris Taylor tying it up, the bullpen shutting things down, the walk-off hit in the ninth, and then you just go out there and you just do the complete opposite. Because, you know, if the Dodgers win that game on Friday, they have the momentum, they've won two in a row, and maybe the series turns out a whole lot differently. So just a very, 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 very forgettable series. Josh, after that series loss, after the three consecutive losses, like you said, Dodgers are now in third place in the NL West. They're four and a half games out. And I know people like to say it's early. I think that's BS once you enter the month of June. I don't think it's too early. I think we got to start paying attention to the wild card standings because, Josh, not only are the Dodgers in third in the NL West, they're in third in the wild card standings. They're two and a half games out from the top spot, but they got the Phillies one game behind them. They got the Brewers two games behind them. They got the Padres, who are playing really, really good baseball as of late. They're four games behind them. A couple more losses here and there. Dodgers aren't even in the wild card, in the top three wild card spots. They're on the outside looking in. So what are your thoughts on this whole, again, people saying we're at the halfway mark. You can't be eyeing the standings too closely. Are you on that side where it is a little bit too early? Or are you looking at it going, yeah, there's still half the season to go. But all of a sudden now, the Dodgers are going to have to climb over all these teams if they want to just make it to the wild card, let alone climb back to the top of the NL West. I'm I'm kind of in both camps a little bit here because I do think that the Dodgers are the team that, like, again, like, they've got so many weapons. Like, they have the capability of pulling themselves out of this rut. I, I, I don't think it's far off to say that the Dodgers are still and should still be considered, you know, uh, uh, the maybe the favorite to still win the division. Maybe not at this point because of how good the Diamondbacks have been. But I think that that's still a fair expectation for the Dodgers is they should win the National League West. Like, they just should. Um, and you look at the, the teams that they're playing against, and the D-backs have, even when the Dodgers were on this long rut, like over the course of the last couple of weeks, couple series losses, you look at their schedule versus the D-back schedule, and 
I have D-backs fan friends that are like, I mean, this is great that the Dodgers are doing this because while the Dodgers are struggling, we've got a pretty easy slate of a couple of series here. So the Dodgers have lost to some good teams and the D-backs have beat up on some bad teams. And, you know, I think without a doubt, the D-backs are a playoff team at this point, but I think we should still expect the Dodgers to compete for the NL West. The problem here is that if you look at the current major league standings going into today's game against the, against the angels, um, the Dodgers are closer to fourth in the NL West than they are to first. They're four games up on the Padres. They are four and a half games behind the D-backs. And that's the reality of the situation, right? Like, should we be paying attention to the wild card race at this point? Maybe not. Should you be concerned that you are four and a half out of first and only four games up on the fourth place team in the division that sure is playing a little bit better but has been god-awful since the start of the season? Yeah, you should. Because you also look at what the Dodgers lineup has. And again, we've talked about the offense. We've talked about not getting a hit with runners in scoring position. You know, we talk about this all the time. Fact of the matter is that the Dodgers lineup should win you games. And I think you should have faith that they will. Again, the consistent problem with the Dodgers is the pitching staff. They have the sixth worst team ERA in baseball. And the only teams ahead of them on this list are, sure, the Reds are up there and they're, you know, in first place in their division. But the other teams on this list, the Nationals, last in the NL East. Uh, you've got the Rockies, last in the NL West. The A's have been a little bit better as of late. They're, they've got the worst team ERA in the league. The Kansas City Royals are above the Dodgers. Those are the only teams on this list of team ERA worse than the LA Dodgers at this point. And a bottom six team ERA is not going to win you games because you look at the guys who are keeping that ERA as low as it is are guys like Bobby Miller and Clayton Kershaw and Tony Gonsolin and you know Evan Phillips and Shelby Miller. And that's all fine and dandy. But the fact of the matter is the Dodgers pitching staff is not healthy, at least from a starting rotation standpoint. And the bullpen has not carried its weight. And case in point, look at this game against the Giants on Friday where you have some rookie come up make his debut. It was announced that he was getting called up within 24 hours of when he first stepped on the mound and he threw six no hit innings. The team had a four nothing lead and then they lost an extra innings because they couldn't get a clutch hit and the bullpen absolutely blew it. So that's where we're at right now is that's the reality of the Dodgers situation. And at some point they need to figure out how to remedy that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the main reason why I don't like the whole it's early argument because you look at the Dodgers, I think, I'd have to look it up, but I think there's something like 12 and 18 over their last 30 games, and you just kind of outlined it. The pitching staff as a whole, essentially, outside of a few names, is an absolute disaster. Uh, the Dodgers, Josh, another thing we didn't even mention, so they got swept this weekend. They didn't hit a single home run, and that's something I think I talked about in the last episode, that they, the highest percentage of their runs come via the home run. So if the Dodgers aren't hitting home runs, they're not scoring a whole lot. So, again, 80 games or so, we're almost halfway through the season, but it's a large enough sample size to know as the way this team is currently constructed, I don't think they can win a World Series. Could they get hot in October and go through a few rounds? I think so, but asking a team to win the wild card round, win, I guess now, four, you have to win four series, that's asking for a whole lot when this team can barely win one series, so 
Yeah, I think there should be concern. Maybe it's a little preposterous on my end looking at the wildcard standings at this point. But again, you have to start paying attention because with so many teams fighting for so many spots, it's going to be hard to not only climb over the two teams in your own division, but potentially climb over five or six teams that are ahead of you in the wildcard standings. So it's been bad for the Dodgers. I guess the silver lining is they are still, I think, six games over 500, but Things are going to have to start turning around at some point because they still have a tough schedule coming up. They got the Angels for two games. They've been playing really good baseball. They got the Astros coming into town this weekend. So uh, for the Dodgers, hopefully they can turn a corner. Hopefully things can get a little better. Maybe the time off is going to be good for their pitching. But yeah, Josh, I want to see something. I want to see something soon because we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. I think the Dodgers only have five or six games against the D-backs left the rest of the season. You got to win those games or else you're going to fall back even further. So who would have thought we'd be doing wildcard standing watch in June, but you know, 80 plus games still to go a lot of time left. Josh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be answering some questions from our viewers. All right, we are back. We're going to wrap up the show talking about a few Q&A questions from our fans. Again, as always, if you guys have a question you'd like to ask us, hit us up on Twitter at Inside the Ravine. Usually about an hour or so before we record an episode, we post a tweet saying hit us up with those questions. Also on Instagram, we do the same as well. Make sure you're following us there. Josh, before we go into the Q&A, one quick thing I wanted to uh, throw out. I just looked up the current betting odds when it comes to the division and the National League as a whole. The Dodgers are still pretty heavily favored. They're minus 220 to win the NL West. The D-backs are at plus 450, whereas the Giants are at plus 550. So the betting market still really thinks that the Dodgers are going to win this division because those are some pretty, pretty significant odds. And the Dodgers, this one actually blows my mind the most, Josh. They're almost tied with the Braves for best odds to win the National League. The Braves are plus 175. The Dodgers are plus 200. And the next closest is the Padres at plus 1,000. So it's essentially a two-legged race between the Dodgers and Braves, which is crazy because I think at the moment, let's say I had the standings in front of me, the Braves are seven games better than the Dodgers right now. So uh, give me the Braves at the moment with the exact same odds as the Dodgers, but that just goes to show... The betting market expects things to turn around for the Dodgers. They expect them to get better. But let's go to our Q&A. Our first question comes from our man, Gage Kirkland, an Arroyo Seco alum, along with the two of us, our man. You're Andrew Godman for a day. What is the first call you're making to fix the damn bullpen? So, Josh, you you, you just took over the Dodgers. You're in charge now. You have access to all the phone numbers and all that kind of stuff. Who are you calling first, and uh, what are you trying to do to fix this bullpen? Uh, it's it's interesting. So I think that first of all, the Dodgers need to to make some sort of move. Um, it kind of depends on who. For me, you know, I'd love to go somebody young, but I think the Dodgers need to go out and just get some sort of help somewhere, um, whether it's even going out and getting a guy like Joe Kelly again, you know, obviously we love Joe Kelly, um, but go out and get a guy like him. It doesn't need to be the Padres going after Josh Hader um, last year. I don't think the Dodgers need to do that. They just need something. Um, I've seen Kimbrell's name even been thrown out there. Not necessarily just for the Dodgers, just as somebody who might be on the market. Absolutely not. 
do not go in that direction. Um, at, that is the wrong idea. Um, but yeah, even if you're if you're going after a guy like Joe Kelly, dare I say, um, <laughs> dare I say Kenyon Middleton, um, who you and I, <laughs> I used to joke about how I couldn't stand watching the guy pitch when he was, you know, with the Angels. But honestly, it's just, I they just need they just need somebody. I think if you're well, it depends on who's a free agent. So who's who's a good free agent? I mean, um, is Chapman a free agent? It's it's just it's tough though. It's just Chapman because agent. it's just tough because at this point it's like you don't know who's necessarily going to be selling. You know, six weeks from now, you don't know who's going to be mm-hmm. wanting to trade relievers. So that's why it, it's a little tough as well. And like you said, it's easy to look at who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. But I like how you just mentioned Aroldis Chapman, Josh. He actually kind of seems like the best option at the moment because the dude's literally having a resurgence of a season. He's averaging 16 strikeouts per nine innings. He has an ERA below three. But my only question is, the the Dodgers, if you recall this many years back, actually traded for Aroldis Chapman, but then they backed out of the deal because of his, I think, domestic violence thing that happened. So I know that... You know, this happened many, many, many years ago, but maybe because of the whole Bauer thing, did the Dodgers want to go after a guy that yeah. they previously dropped because of it? Maybe, you know, again, it's been six or seven years. Maybe that's in the past, but he seems like the best option. It's just a matter of do the Dodgers want to go that route? And I I don't know. I don't I don't know if they what about a guy do the risk. Here, Here's a guy that I, that I like. What about somebody like Kendall Graveman? Um, you know, we saw him the other day. Um, he appeared... Um, against the Dodgers with the White Sox. Obviously, the White Sox are having a, a really, really bad season. Um, I believe he still should have one more year on his deal after this season. Um, he signed um, a three-year, $24 million contract w- with the White Sox um, back in the fall of 2021. Um, so he should still have one more year on his deal after this, which makes me think maybe he's not going to be um, for sale. Um, but hypothetically, that's a guy that I think the Dodgers could, you know, go after. He's a right-handed reliever. He's posted a 2.59 ERA this year across 32 relief appearances, and uh, strikes a lot of guys out too. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's somewhere that the Dodgers could look, um, as opposed to going out and maybe jumping at one of the biggest names out there, regardless of how their season been, like with somebody like Chapman. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I've seen graveman a little bit this year and maybe if he's on the market maybe that's somebody that the dodgers could bite yeah pretty much the white Sox makes the most sense just because they have a plethora of bullpen arms in addition to starting pitchers i mean kendall graveman like you said gregory santos is the name i've seen thrown around kenyon middleton a name that you mentioned josh joe obviously joe kelly's numbers haven't been there this year but you could probably get him for fairly cheap and even like liam hendricks who is currently on the il so I mean, the White Sox, they have a number of guys that really make a lot of sense for the Dodgers. But to wrap up this question, Josh, my answer is easy. And I'm not calling the White Sox. I'm calling a different colored sock. I'm calling the Red Sox. And I'm getting Kenley Jansen back to Los Angeles. I'm bringing him back. He's been very good for the Red Sox this season. The Dodgers, they, they need a closer. Have him in the ninth. Have Evan Phillips be your fireman. Get Daniel Hudson back in the coming weeks. But bring Kenley Jansen back. Have him as the Dodgers closer. And bring my man back. That's who I'm calling first and foremost. Because I believe he's, I think he's only on a one-year deal. So he won't be too expensive. He'll be fairly cheap. Bring him back. 
Bring the king home, Josh. I love it. Bring the king home. Uh, we're going to rapid fire Bring a few home. of these so that we can, we can wrap up this show. Um, this one comes from uh, a username I cannot say because it has a bad word in it, but he says to uh, cover Bruce Dark Gratterall since casuals think he's an issue, but his stats say otherwise. Josh, Bruce Dark Gratterall is like the weirdest pitcher to me because numbers-wise, 2.40 ERA, you know, he has a FIP of 2.95. His whip is a little high at 1.23, but it's not awful by any means. Doesn't walk anyone. But for some reason, he just still has this persona on the mound where he comes out and you're thinking, I don't know. It, it just feels like he blows games more often than the numbers indicate. And I think I have a reason why. So on the season, Josh, he has eight earned runs, but he's allowed 12 on the season. So that's four runs that are unearned. That would probably push his ERA well above three. And I remember I was looking into this a while back. He's allowed a lot of inherited runners to score. I think he's allowed maybe three or four inherited runners to score, which seems like he's allowing more runs than he is, but it goes on the previous guys he got raised. So the numbers say Bruce Gratterall has been fine. His advanced numbers say he's been a well above average relief pitcher. But Josh, do you trust Bruce Gratterall in a high lever situation? No, I don't. Don't and, and and I feel like some of the flack that he has gotten is somewhat warranted. And it's not necessarily that the numbers are bad. The numbers are fine. You said you mentioned the whip. The whip is a little bit high, um, but the ERA is is good. You know he's allowed in, in inherited runners to score though. Um, but the thing for me is that it's just never easy and it's never pretty. Like that's the problem. Like fact of the matter is he's getting he's getting it done a majority of the time but it's never pretty. And you also have the consistent threat of him making a fielding or throwing error on a ball that's batted in the infield. Um, and that, I mean, what was, it was two or three games in a row at this point, uh, a couple weeks ago, like, and, and that's just, um, that's just a risk that you can't have um, with a guy like Gratterall. Um, so yeah. Are the numbers okay? Yes. Um, is it ever easy with Gratterall? Most of the time? No. Yeah, again, I mean, he's fine if he's coming in with a couple-run lead, but obviously we saw this past week, and on Friday night, Josh, he came in with a four-run lead in the, in the seventh inning, allows a two-run home run, cuts the deficit in half. So, yeah, I mean, I, I get I get it. The numbers say he's been fine. He doesn't walk anyone. He allows weak contact. But, yeah, if it's a high-leverage situation, there are other guys in the pen that I trust a whole lot more than Bruce Arcadero at the moment. And, again, you're, you're on the verge of him fielding a ball and throwing that thing into the top deck at this point because you don't know what he's going to do defensively uh one final question josh this one comes from david herman and he says can we talk about your fantasy team and uh he's referring to the fantasy league that i'm in with him and i just had to check the standings josh and it's a league where you don't get a win or a loss every week you uh play categories there's 12 categories a week and currently in that league josh i am 46 and 81 oh my so gosh. uh it ha things haven't been too kind for me in that league uh no not at all or pretty much any fantasy league i join it doesn't matter whether yeah. it's fantasy baseball fantasy football we can talk i'm about out here if you want yeah if it's fantasy football i'm putting in hours on hours listening to podcasts listening to guys to pick up off the waiver wire looking up guys that i should maybe trade for maybe guys i should sell high on whereas you have I, meanwhile i'm missing the playoffs every year whereas you have josh who has the same team every year and doesn't really do much on the waiver wire, doesn't really do much when it comes to trades, and every year, he's either in the championship game or he's like the runner-up in the semifinals every year. 
See, it's that's not my fair. thing with fantasy football. I think it is worth <laughs> pointing out. It's it's worth pointing out that we are in uh, we use sleeper and we're in a uh, a dynasty league. So we hypothetically, I could never make a trade and have the same team every year. <laughs> right. I usually make about one one big trade a year usually. But the thing is, is like even when we did it on ESPN and we like changed our, you know, we had different teams every year, no keepers or anything like that, no dynasty. The one thing that I'll give myself in in fantasy is Rick. I think I'm pretty meticulous about my draft preparation, and I think I actually draft very, very well. Um, so that's my thing is uh, like if I can compliment myself in a way it's that I feel like I'm very good at drafting. Um, but at that point, then it's like, how do I make my moves and things like that? And, and really like for me, ever since I've been playing fantasy football, I make one big trade a year and that's kind of just how it goes every year. Um, but yeah, I'm starting to realize that between you and me, Blake, I know that I think you've already realized this, um, between you and me, I hope our friends aren't listening to this. I have started to put absolutely no stock in draft picks whatsoever. Um, <laughs> that I am starting to put stock in the first round of next year's draft, which I'm sure you can pinpoint for obvious reasons. Um, but like other than our first round of next year's draft, I don't really care too much about draft picks at this point. So I think I'm willing to trade. Um, you know, Blake has zero draft picks for the next three. Hey, man. Hey, man. Hey, 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 I do have a third rounder in 2026 that is still sitting there that is yet to be dealt josh we got that one third three <laughs> nobody wants that watch it's juicy you man keep that out of principle you should keep that out of mm-hmm. principle and then draft what if you just draft like some insane nfl talent that like comes through in like say five years so two years yep. from now you've got this third rounder that comes around you make this pick and then in like four years from today you've got just this yep. insane team led by that player and I will laugh at everyone that didn't want that didn't want my 2026 there. So Josh, are are you are you making a play? I mean, again, I doubt they're listening. So I guess this can stay here. Are you trying to uh, figure out a way where you can get Caleb on your team, or is there a, another player that? Because uh, Caleb makes the most sense. I mean, he would look beautiful on so, your team leading the way. Yes, I, I I agree. So for those who obvious if you've been listening to it for a while you know that Blake and I both went to ASU but I grew up a USC football fan so um, I still follow USC very closely would love to have Caleb Williams on my team my quarterbacks right now in our sleepers league are my starter last year who was that not last year the year before I was the number one team in the league I think two years in a row now two years in a row I had the number one even choked in the playoffs Uh, this last year (laughs) was the first round it was like the the game before the championship, I think. Um, but my quarterback two years ago, the Rams Super Bowl year was Matthew Stafford. And I it, he was awesome for me because he's not the top quarterback in the league, but he was like top seven and he was really yeah. good for me. So my backup was Trevor Lawrence. And Trevor Lawrence after last season has now basically usurped my QB1 role from Matthew Stafford. <laughs> so I've got Trevor Lawrence, who's obviously what, 24, 25. So I've got, or he's 23. So I've got a good starting quarterback, I think, in Trevor Lawrence who I can get some years out of. And then I've got Stafford, I've got Kenny Pickett, and who's fine. And then I actually think that's it. So I've got one old guy who I hope I can rely on this year. I've got two young guys. One of them I think I can definitely rely on. But yeah. you and I are also going to be having a second QB added in this league next year, which means I'm going to probably need to add one more quarterback. So I would love to have that opportunity. But again, yeah. like if Caleb isn't there, I, I am starting to stockpile some picks 
The problem was that I had traded a first rounder in next year's draft. I, I have since gotten it back. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm starting to make some moves here because I would like to be in position to take Caleb Williams. But if he's not there, he's not there. And, and we'll go from there. Do you have your own? Because I, we originally, I think I had this, your first, it went to me because I traded you some running back, I think, when I was tearing it down. But then I proceeded to trade your first to another team, who I then think traded that first to another team. So is that first made it back, or do you have a first of some other random team? No, so I I have your first-round pick. Because I <laughs> traded you a first-round pick, I think, right? Yeah, I got and yours. And you traded it to somebody else. But then you also traded your yeah. first-round pick. And I now so then have mine went from somebody else has mine via you. There needs to be some like website where you could just like punch in your like league settings or like your league code, and it can just put like some map together of like because you can like look at trade history for players, but you can't look at trade history for picks. So I would love to just see like how my pick has bounced around like all these teams. Like I said, at this point, I don't even know who has your pick anymore because I like, had it for I about have, a month and then I traded it. I have your first round picks or I have your picks in the first and third round next year. I don't know what I did to get a third round <laughs> pick from you. I don't but know, I don't know either. There are three rounds in our rookie draft and I've got two third round picks and one of them is yours. I also have your first round pick. So I think... I should probably try to swap my second round pick for whoever has your second round pick. Cause I know you don't have it. So I should I find who does complete the trifecta. I, I couldn't tell you who has my second round pick. Either. The true Holy Trinity is Blake's sleeper <laughs> dynasty league picks. <laughs> yeah. It's something like that. So yeah, there's a, a nice side discussion on our fantasy football league where hey, as the season's approaching, we'll get more of those help Josh get Blake Caleb Williams. That's why Blake takes the uh, loves the the Andrew Friedman questions is because Blake just likes to play GM, yes. so he can just sit on his couch and trade. Oh, we don't need this prospect. We're trading him. <laughs> Blake just wants to trade yeah. everyone. I do for no reason. I had for some reason I ended up with Robert Woods, and I kept trying to give Josh Robert Woods. It got to the point where I was just saying, "Here, give me waiver wire money." and get Robert Woods, just because I needed to make a trade, and the only person that would want to trade for him would be Josh. But even then, he held strong and said, no, not even for waiver wire money. He's that <laughs> dead to me. So that just goes to show how our league goes. But I think that's a perfect note to wrap up the show on. Uh, hey, as always, thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate you turning and tuning into what Inside the Fantasy Football uh, podcast this has become. Uh, make sure you guys follow us on social media at Inside the Ravine, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at Inside the Ravine. You guys can also watch our full shows over on YouTube. Just search Inside the Ravine. Josh, any final thoughts, words before you head out for the week to a far off well, land known as Cape Cod? Yes, I am. So we'll be uh, a lot of baseball this week flying into Boston. We'll be taking in a Worcester Red Sox game. Um, the former stomping grounds of Jeter Downs. Um, oh boy is he still there there's no way right i think he's in the national system now i want to say he is yeah yeah yeah. that's yeah. right that's right so the former stomping grounds of jeter down so going to a, a woo socks game this week then we'll take in a couple of chatting chatham games the stomping grounds of michael bush spencer torkelson chris bryant among others kyle hurt um and then huh kyle hurt Kyle oh, no, Hurt, no. another guy. Oh, was, was he, or is he just SC, or was he SC no, no, Chatham? Kyle, Kyle Hurts, and a USC Chatham oh, guy. That, oh, uh, my. Jeff Belge, who actually just left the Dodgers system, um, was another minor league 
prospect for the Dodgers. He was there. Um, but yeah, so we'll go out to a couple of Chatham games, and then we are ending the trip with a matchup between the Mighty Marlins and the Red Sox mm-hmm. at Fenway Park. So all of those games, and then uh, be back for more Inside the Ravine. There you go. Josh is going to get a bunch of names that a couple years down the line he's going to say, yep, oh, I'm, I'm all in on this high A prospect because I got to see him play at Chatham <laughs> back in 2023. So there you yes, go. Sir. Never too much Chatham. So as always, thank you guys so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Make sure to give this podcast a review on whatever podcast app you guys use. And as always, enjoy the rest of your day and your week wherever you may be.